I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 112. About IBD is excited to be partnering on this new limited podcast series, How to Be Happy and Healthy with IBD. Talking with friends, family, and coworkers about IBD is not easy. And in some cases, that's probably an understatement. If you look at social media though, it might seem like there are many people who are comfortable discussing their IBD pretty openly. But even experienced patients can find it challenging to be vulnerable and honest with the people that are close to them. That's why I asked Dr. Alexandra Foos, a clinical health psychologist and an assistant professor of psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine, and Brooke Abbott, ulcerative colitis patient, founder of the Crazy Creole Mommy Chronicles and co-founder of IBD Moms, to tell me how they cope with everyday conversations surrounding IBD. While open communication is really a key part of creating a support system, stick around to the end to hear how Dr. Foos and Brooke both also look to their pets as important members of their IBD team. Our topic today is how to discuss IBD with our friends and family. I have two guests with me to dig into this idea. First, Dr. Alexandra Foos, a clinical health psychologist and assistant professor of psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine. Welcome to About IBD. Would you please take a minute and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So, I mean, you hit the name. I'm Dr. Very fancy, Alexandra Foos. So I am the digestive health psychologist at Yale School of Medicine, um, assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry there. Beyond all of that fanciness, though, I am a ulcerative colitis survivor and thriver. Thank you so very much. I'm going to take that into my soul, survivor and thriver. Mm -hmm. So also with me, I have another ulcerative colitis survivor and thriver, Brooke Abbott, the founder of Crazy Creole Mommy and the co-founder of IBD Moms. And she also happens to be my friend and in pre-COVID times, frequent traveling partner. Welcome back to About IBD, Brooke. I wonder if you take a minute to introduce yourself. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me again, Amber. I really love your podcast. I am Brooke Abbott. I am a mom of one tween and a mom of one furry toddler. He's a dog. He's not <laughs> a furry <laughs> child. <laughs> toddler. <laughs> and I, like Amber said, I'm an IBD patient, but I also live with the J pouch. So I'm a J poucher and I am currently a student, hopefully. Uh, transferring to a UC, which is University of California, because I am a California resident. And uh, I'm a political junkie and a coffee person. All I do is drink coffee, I realize. Coffee and water, that's scary, actually. (laughs) At least you get the water in there. I definitely don't get the water in there as much as I should, although when I'm recording, I do, because it does help to keep the voice a little fresher. Um, So thanks to both of you for being here. I really appreciate it. You're going to bring different perspectives to this topic, and I'm so looking forward to it. So I'm just going to jump right into it. And first, I'm going to start with you, Dr. Foos. You're a GI health psychologist, Mm -hmm. and you also live with an IBD. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about your journey as a patient and then how that has intersected with your career? 
Yeah, happy to. So I also have a J pouch. I probably should have mentioned that as well. Thanks for reminding me, Brooke. Um, so I, yeah, just to kind of give a little bit of backstory, I was diagnosed with UC when I was about 13. Um, and from there, I went through just a whirlwind of medications, drug trials, um, blood transfusions, TPN, Remicade, the whole nine yards until eventually we just kind of came to the realization, you know, this wasn't going to be a matter of if it was going to be a matter of when, when it came to surgery. So I had a three-stage J pouch procedure. We had the temporary ostomy. And then unfortunately towards, I think it was right around my third surgery, I ended up going, getting a pinhole leak. And so I was septic, uh, went under the knife for 30 days plus in a row, doing the full clean out. So definitely I've been through the ringer there in college, had to have an ostomy bag again, because of course she likes to act up you know, here and there, you know, you got to get your 10,000 mile tune-ups, as I like to say too, um, with those J pouches. And so, um, yeah. And so how that intersected with my career. So, you know, my team of medical providers was absolutely phenomenal. I could not have asked for better. And at the same time, there just wasn't a lot in terms of resources for how I was doing emotionally and handling this and not just myself, but I mean, I even think about my mom, who was my absolute rock. I, I say all the time, like she's, she's the reason I'm still here. Um, so I knew I wanted a career where I could somehow give back and fill that need. I thought about going and becoming an MD, calculus said no, um, you know, and then I really got to thinking and it's, yeah, okay, it's those emotional things. Like there's so many people who don't have the uh, Susie Foos out there being an advocate and helping and, you know, giving you the pep talk and the tough talk. And so just, again, that's where I, I started thinking about psychology. I loved those classes. And then I went on for my master's and I said, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be in GI and my professor's a lot of them said like, well, that's, that's oddly specific, but okay. Um, and so that's, that's what I did. So I went, I got my master's at Marquette University in Milwaukee. I'm sure you can hear the Wisconsin native in every ounce of my voice right now. And then I went and got my, my PhD in counseling psychology at the University of Memphis. And so every single thing I've done since then has been to move towards that career in GI psychology and specifically working with gastroenterology patients. So in terms of also with career intersect, I mean, it's very interesting. I work in the department that's also the people who treat me. Yeah. And so my fellowship was in rural medicine. And so sometimes it was getting uh, referrals from a doctor who was, I just have to kind of look at him and go like, well, you've seen my butt. And now we just have to <laughs> set that boundary. We're going to pretend that didn't happen <laughs> while we're discussing this professionally. Um, and so, I mean, it, it intersects in so many different ways. Yeah. I love that. We're so grateful to have you because that's really fantastic. I just, I just love it. I'm not, I'm not happy at all that you live with IBD, but I'm very happy that you are here to help us. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brooke, as we were just discussing with Dr. Fuse's wide range of capabilities and understandings as she went through her studies, IBD affects everything. It affects our families. It affects our relationships. It affects our friendships. Can you talk about some of the ways that IBD has affected the relationships in your life? Oh, yeah. Um, in so many different ways, both positive and negative, I think. 
I don't want to start off on a negative foot, but I didn't start <laughs> off as a single parent. I am currently a single parent. Um, but I also have found that I've been a little bit more open with my friends and my family. Um, I'm a little bit more transparent where I was pretty closed off before. I do see different relationships within my family. We have a very close-knit family and it's very large, but I find that those relationships that I had before I was diagnosed or before I started getting sick have kind of grown in, and matured in a way um, because I think that this disease and my advocacy work has kind of forced me to be more transparent, more talkative, more vocal about my feelings. And it wasn't always like this. I think before my surgery, because I was kind of keeping my disease to myself, I, I was still, you know, that like, keep it to yourself, close person. But after my surgery, when I started to kind of tell my story and I realized that it was more important that I be open about my symptoms and about how I was feeling, it wasn't so much of a burden as I thought that I was before. It really did help with my relationships with my parents, with my siblings, with my cousins and my grandparents. And, you know, you, you said earlier, I don't like that you have IBD, but I'm, I'm grateful, you know, that Dr. Foose is able to help us. And I, I feel the same way. I'm, I don't like that I have IBD, but I think without IBD, I probably wouldn't have some of the relationships that I have now, especially some of the friendships, you know, like you and, and some of our other friends. And it wouldn't have allowed me to be as open as I am now. It's also allowed me to be a better mom. It wasn't just so much that I was home more. I, I think I've taken more time to communicate with my kid about everything. Like we talk through things. I've allowed them to be a little more independent in certain ways because I, I've almost had to rely on that independence because I get sick so frequently. So yeah, like it's, it, I think there've been some very good highs and, and some lows. Um, but I also feel like I'm coming into my own and having a better relationship with myself too. I think one thing that we have that comes up a lot when we're trying to sort of like cover. Um, so when we're trying to go through our life around people who don't live with an IBD or a chronic illness, we are trying to do all the things that they're doing and it doesn't necessarily work out. And maybe that's one of the reasons that we sometimes find it easier to have friendships with people who have IBD or live with another chronic condition. And so Dr. Foose, one of the things that we can come up against when we're trying to live our lives is that we end up canceling plans. We cancel on people, or maybe we don't even make plans in the first place, especially if we're dealing with a long-term flare-up. How can people feel less guilty about taking the time to take care of themselves when they do need to cancel plans and maybe are disappointing somebody? 
Yeah, and that's a really great question. Um, I love the word that you use when we're trying to cover. Yeah, when we're trying to just like be exactly like another person who is, like you said, isn't dealing with this, who isn't Mm -hmm. going through all these things. So, I mean, the first go-to strategy um, is really learning, leaning into that self-compassion. So, you know, as human beings, we're often, you know, our worst critics. Um, We're the hardest on ourselves. And, you know, it can be, it can be really easy to lean into that, like, oh, I should be able to do this because like, all these people can do it. Why can't I do it? And not to mention the fact, I think when we are in a situation where we have to cancel plans, when we have to kind of just like put ourselves first and say, I'm not going out tonight. I think that also is difficult emotionally because it highlights that our bodies aren't working the way we want them to. It's it's highlighting those limitations. And so like you can kind of see where that can even kind of perpetuate more of that shame and that guilt. And so, you know, taking a quick breath saying, okay, if this was somebody I loved and cared about and they had to cancel, what would I actually think? Or would I fault them for staying in? Probably not because we are so like compassionate. We are such compassionate people and we're kind and we care about this person. And so remembering that, okay, as much as we can be kind to others, we can be equally kind to ourselves and keeping in mind too, like we are worthy of caring for ourselves and openly communicating with others why we're canceling those plans. I think Brooke, you hit it really nicely there with, you know, becoming more open and communicating these things with people just so that they, they understand. It's not that I don't want to see you. It's not that, you know, I'm mad at you. This is what's going on with me. The more I have found, the more vulnerabilities I've been in my life. And even sometimes with my patients, you know, the, the better relationships are, the more people understand, the more I'm able to receive compassion from others because they're able to voice it in a way that's authentic because even if they don't know, and if you've ever gotten, they're like, oh no, it's fine. Don't worry about it, girl. It's okay. Yeah. And then you're sitting there going like, uh, you have no idea. It's probably not okay. But when they know, and you know, they know, it, it's a little bit easier to take in that compassion and that, that reassurance that, that it's all right. I feel like Dr. Foods just went into my brain <laughs> and just like put it out there. Even though you can be transparent, even though you can be open, like you still have those moments of guilt. Two things. My kid was supposed to go shopping for the dance, first dance, you know, going shopping with their friends. When I went to pick them up from school, I had completely forgotten. I wasn't feeling well and I was kind of like on a tight schedule. And I told them no after I had already told them yes. And then I started crying and I was like, I'm sorry, like, I'm really, really sorry. He's like, okay, mom, it's fine. And I feel like sometimes, even though you hear okay, you're still projecting that fear and that anxiety. And I did it with my sister the other day. She had a Zoom birthday and I was just not in a place to be able to be on Zoom with all of her friends. I just didn't want to distract from her, you know, her birthday and her thing. And so I didn't show up. And she was not angry. She was not, you know, she totally got it. And I just profusely apologized, not realizing like, she's seen you at your worst. She gets it. Like, it's fine. Yeah. But you do it automatically. And maybe, you know, if we just start kind of trusting our friends a little bit and our family members and trusting that they understand, it 
could be better for all of us individually. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think even building on that, if there is somebody in your life who perpetuates that guilt and says the things like, well, you should be here and you always do this and you've, it's just, it's not maybe a safe person to talk to or be open with thinking about, okay, wait, is this a person that is a positive influence on my life? Is this an actual good friend? Is this a good support person? And kind of allowing yourself to remember, like, you don't have to live to this super high bar because that's unreasonable for any human. And I don't know, it's my opinion that every human deserves a certain level of respect, dignity, and to be treated, you know, with compassion and caring and love. And if there is somebody in your life who isn't doing that, chronic illness or not, that's not okay. And it's okay to acknowledge like this isn't okay and set that boundary. Yeah, let's pull at that a little bit more because IBD is really isolating. Mm -hmm. And yet we need a good support system (laughs) to help us through our challenges. So Dr. Foose, I'm wondering, what are some of the ways that we can focus on creating and keeping stronger bonds with our friends and family? Yeah. So yeah, I I talked about, I think we've talked about open communication plenty. We know that that's a great way to start. One thing too is to think about your support system and really identify there tends to be three kinds of supportive people. You've got your distractors who are your, you don't want to talk about it. Let's just go, let's just go out and not talk about it and go do anything else. Go to a movie, talk about, you know, what's on Netflix, good distractors. You've got your emotions people who will sit with you with like, I always imagine like the hot tea and the blankies and just like, tell me everything. How are you feeling? Like cry on my shoulder. And then you've got your doers who are the, I'm going to bring you a casserole. I'm going to clean your house. You want me to walk your dog? I'll walk your dog. I got everything done. I did your grocery shopping. What do you need? Some people are combinations of two. And then you have those lovely unicorns who can be all three. And so it's it's good to keep this in mind when we're asking for support of our support system. Are you asking a distractor to engage with your emotions? Yeah. Well, maybe that's why it's not going so hot. Or maybe leaning into like, okay, I know so-and-so is the hot tea and cry person. And that's what I need right now. That's my person. So that's one way of utilizing a support system is recognizing who can do what. And, you know, every person has good strengths and weaknesses and kind of being thoughtful of that and also getting creative. So, you know, it maybe it's going out is hard right now. I mean, we're in a global pandemic and, Mm. you know, you're dealing with an illness because, yeah, that's just, it's just not fair. Um, but you, okay, you still want to be in touch with people. So maybe instead of getting up and going out and putting on clothes and like having to put <laughs> real pants on gross, um, you know, maybe having the zoom movie date where you can stay home in your jammies. Um, but you're still having some of that quality time together or, you know, having friends and family who are comfortable coming over to just do nothing. Yeah. Um, that's a good way of still building connections. And then, you know, phone calls, check-ins, text messages, even just sending like a funny meme that just like boop forward, just to let people know, like, I'm still thinking about you. You're still on my mind. If you're finding your support group is kind of, oh, this isn't quite getting it for me. Finding other folks with IBD or with a chronic illness through support groups and support networks so that you can kind of talk to other people who are in similar circumstances 
and who do really get it. And you can feel that genuineness from in that way. And maybe that's just the connection you need at that moment. I love that. I've never heard of this three different types of people, but as you said it, it was like, everything makes sense now. Like I get it now. I am that mean person. So that is how I will check on someone. I will send them a meme and just see what I get back because sometimes it leads to a larger conversation mm -hmm. about whatever's going on with them because I found that some people don't like answering the question, hey, how are you? Yeah. Because I think I am that tea and emotion person at times, or I want to be. Um, but some people are not at that place. So it just, you give them a way to talk to you that is not necessarily, hey, how are you? Yeah, It's just a, a different entry into the conversation. Even for us, I mean... Like, I don't always want to, like, as soon as somebody I know knows that I've been in the hospital, it's, it's so well-meaning and it's just, it comes from nothing but love, but like explaining to like five different people what happened. Oh, yeah. So right. it, it was, right. I was, I was actually in the hospital not too long ago. And then I kind of fell off the face of the earth for a little bit socially, just for like a little bit. I was off doing things for the holidays and I got in touch with my girlfriend and a mutual friend of ours was like, hey, is Allie okay? We haven't heard from her since the hospital. And she goes, oh, well, we're getting memes, so she must be alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's sometimes how people know that I'm alive as well, as I just, I just randomly send them a meme. Brooke, do you have any tips? Do you have anything that you do to keep in touch with people and keep relationships going? Maybe when you are feeling like it's it's a struggle to keep up relationships or people might be worried about you at the time. I love a good group text. Ah, I'm yeah. just a, you know, a good group text. I also bombard my siblings and my mom with reels on Instagram, <laughs> like funny animal reels or funny kid reels. I love um, kind of creating a special time like the other not too long ago amber you me and ryan we had like a zoom evening it was just an hour and we just talked about really nothing but everything all at the same time and it was so fantastic i don't know that i can do that all the time but to be able to once in a while just have that connection with people who don't expect a lot out of me is very nice and reassuring. Um, and then, you know, just the check-ins. I don't really do the, hey, how are you? I will send mm. an emoji. I will send a meme. Um, I'll send a, a picture of the dog. So yeah, I use a lot of interactive things. I don't know that I'm like, hey, how's it going? Like, I don't do that. Yeah. Are you okay? Are you all right? Would you tell me if you were... <laughs> Oh, no, I do that. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. My friends and I do that, but I mean, most of us are psychologists. So you have psychologists, psychologists in each other. And... <laughs> Ooh, that must be fun. You know, I learned that from my teen. Because when you ask a tween or a teenager a direct question, you don't get an answer whatsoever. But if I send my kid like a clip, a YouTube clip or something like that engages a little bit more. Yeah. And like, what a great highlighting moment, though, of that self-compassion, right? Like I meet him where he's at. So why wouldn't it be acceptable for people to meet you where you're at? Yeah. You know, 
Ooh, that might be asking too much of some uh, people. I know. <laughs> I know. I have. <laughs> so easy to say, so difficult to practice sometimes. <laughs> so I think something that happens a lot is that people with IBD feel like they can be a burden to their family and their friends, especially people that wind up as our caregivers, whether that's a partner or a parent, or sometimes it can even be our kids that end up being our caregivers. So I'm wondering, Dr. Foose, what do you say to your patients who come to you and say that they feel like they're a burden to other people? Yeah. And that's definitely something I hear a lot. And it's something I've personally felt plenty of times being using open communication, not just to communicate about the disease itself, but even just saying to a loved one or a friend, like, I'm, I, you know, I'm feeling a little like a burden, or I, I could just use some reassurance right now and just openly asking for it um, is one helpful thing. Um, mm. And there was this amazing saying that I heard from a provider in palliative care. It's really stuck with me. And I know I'm going to butcher it because I always do. But it's basically, you know, if we think about when somebody we love is hurting or isn't going through a great time. We want to help. We want to do something. We want to support them. But sometimes we don't know what to do. And so when we allow other people to be there and to help us, we are giving them that opportunity to do that thing that we would want to do for them. Right. And so that's one way of thinking about it is we're allowing somebody to feel like they are doing something that can help us when we ask for help or even when we don't have to ask for anything. And it's literally just like, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your patience is like my new favorite phrase. I use it all the time. Thank you for your patience with me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your patience. Yeah, I think I read that somewhere. It was uh, instead of saying sorry for everything, start saying thank you. Yes. And it's been a a pretty big game changer. I think it has too. I have to say, I, I don't, I don't often have this burden feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering how that resonates with you, though, Brooke. Have you ever felt like that? And how did you manage it? This is a tough one, mm-hmm. because no one has ever actively made me feel like a burden. No one has said anything or been unsupportive. There have been times recently where my mom has you know, tried to help me and um, I just feel so guilty. So I don't know that I really manage it very well. I, tr- I, I'm not as bad as I used to be. And I think that communication has really helped us a lot in my self-realization that I'm, I haven't done this to myself. I'm not guilty of anything. We are a family. Um, I, my friends love me and I'm not a burden to them. Uh, We are in an active relationship. I am an active member of my family and my group of friends and my community. But yeah, I still have that nagging thing in the back of my head. And I think too, I also just get tired of being sick. And that's part of it too. Yeah. And it sounds so irrational because there's no cure for IBD. I have extra intestinal manifestations that will never go away. I will always have some sort of disease, some sort of uh, form of fatigue or an ailment or physical pain. And I have come to an agreement with myself logically that this is the way it is. And then that makes me feel like a burden because I feel like I'm restricting other people's lives or other people's access to me and my family. 
Yeah. And as you were speaking, I mean, I think one thing that definitely struck me too is we spend a lot of time talking about how do we not feel frustrated? How do we feel better? And at the same time, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable to be frustrated and to be sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so I think even just allowing yourself to feel that is really healthy as opposed to trying to push it away all the time. And, you know, finding that that coping or, you know, whatever it means to chat that allows you to feel it and acknowledge it and work through it. Because, I mean, if we stuff it, if we push it and we put it in the box in the closet, eventually that box is just going to get really full and it's, it's going to pop out one way or another. So I think that's as equally as important as it is to cope and to manage, it's also very, very important to acknowledge and feel those feelings. Dr. Foose, do you have any tips for patients on how they can open up a conversation with family or friends about IBD? And do you have a way of knowing when someone is ready to hear about IBD and what we have to say about it? Yeah. So I think, I mean, the first thing when it comes to talking with family and friends about IBD is ultimately, I mean, it's completely up to you how much or how little you want to share with who and when. And a lot of that is really based on your relationship with that person, how safe you feel talking to that person. I tend to lean also into humor. IBD can be really rough. And I don't know, I find it sometimes easier to just use that humorous stance when I'm talking about it to connect with other people. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's a lot of different little aspects to it, but it really depends on the context, right? So if... yeah let's say somebody and it's more negative of like, they are saying like, well, why can't you do this? Like, just suck it up. <laughs> um, you know, whatever the the saying might be that of just saying, okay, actually, that really hurts me. Why don't we sit down so I can tell you why? Right. Maybe if we had took a second and I was able to break this down and help you understand, I think that would be really helpful, which is like the most shrinky way to probably say that ever. <laughs> but, um, just to even like utilize a conversation with with my partner more recently. Um, you know, he's obviously never dated somebody with IBD before. And I was a little flary and we were we went out somewhere to eat. I, I just told him what what to order. He went up and he said, oh, they asked me a question and I changed it. Oh, no. And I was like, okay, we need to talk about that. When I'm in a flare, you can't change my order. And this is why. Right. Or um, he would say, oh, we're going to get dinner and things at this time. And then it wouldn't happen. And I was like, okay, again, I plan a lot of my day around when we're eating and what I'm going to eat. Yep. And so yep. sitting him down, being vulnerable, saying, this is why this is. And I think that also kind of segues nicely into like, is there a way to know when someone's ready to hear it? I think it is being that safe person. I don't know. You, there's kind of that that sense. And I mean, sometimes maybe they're not ready to hear it, but they need to hear it. That's a good point. And that's also okay. Like, we don't always need to tiptoe around other people. We have needs. It's okay to like say like, no, I think you need to hear this. And it's not going to be easy but it's definitely going to impact our relationship in a really healthy way if you know this. And maybe that's why my toes hurt all of the time. Um, 
too much tiptoeing. Brooke, how about you? When you need to discuss IBD with someone that doesn't already know, and in our situation, it's sometimes a little bit different. It's kind of like, well, doesn't everybody know? But there are sometimes people then you meet them for the first time and you need to disclose something. How do you start? What do you do? So I usually start with Crohn's disease because most people know what Crohn's disease is. And um, I'll say, you know, have you ever heard of Crohn's disease? I have the sister disease to Crohn's disease. When I started talking to my family about it, we're really into normalizing everything. A big thing for us is Sunday dinner. And um, quite often we would get together and Oh, and when I say I have a large family, y'all, like our Sunday dinners were multiple tables of people having different conversations. And quite often, um, autoimmune diseases would come up mm -hmm. and it wouldn't be like, hey, Brooke, how's your ulcerative colitis? It would just be like, you know, my aunt would say like, is that is this, you know, IBD friendly, this food or um, can you have coffee tonight with dessert? We try to normalize them. And I've kind of taken that concept um and i've used that in my advocacy work and i've done that in just talking to parents at the school you know with volunteering um sometimes you know i will volunteer for things but before i completely sign my life away to the school i'll say you know just want to remind everyone you know i have a chronic condition some days i'm unable to do xyz so i may need help with blah, 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 blah. And that will lead into a, a very casual conversation. When I wasn't very educated about the disease, it felt very overwhelming. And I almost blocked it out for, not almost, I blocked it out for a time because it just seemed like a lot. And also, I don't know if anyone's ever stepped back, but when you start thinking about your symptoms and stuff, it's like, is this real? <laughs> You're really feeling this way? Like, seriously, that's how it feels. It, it, it almost seems fantastical. So I really try to like keep it relative and casual and I keep the door open for more questions. And the first 10 years of me having this disease, when I would be flaring and we'd be at a restaurant and, you know, everyone's like, well, Brooke, you pick the restaurant because you've got <laughs> IBD. And I'd be like, no, I'll find something. And we're all sitting there and everyone's ordering these amazing dishes. And I'm like, can I have a plate of fries? Mm -hmm. And my mom's like, you can't eat that. I'm like, this is all I can eat right now. And that conversation would turn into, well, the doctor said blah, blah, blah. But mom, this part works for me. This is why it works. This is why I need the salt. Like, you know, th these are the conversations. And, and I tr also try not to get too defensive because it's coming from a place of love and a place of wanting to understand and a place of wanting to help. My mom's only asking that question because she wants to be able to be prepared the next time I'm in a flare to say like, oh, I, you know, I'm going to go out. Should I get you some sorbet and white rice? Back when I was first diagnosed, the idea of talking about it, and this happens with a lot of my patients as well, it's so overwhelming and scary. And because we don't really know how people are going to react. And so it got me thinking about, um, I explain anxiety a lot as sometimes it's kind of like a scary movie. The best scary movies are the ones where you don't see what the monster is because your imagination can run wild and you can just, oh my gosh, it's got to be this crazy thing. 
And then they show it to you and it's usually bad special effects. It's usually pretty funny. So not only just by experiencing that conversation, it gets easier and easier and easier with time, but also however scary you're imagining that it is, it's probably going to be about like just bad special effects once you once you actually get to it. That was an amazing analogy. Thank you so much for that. Dr. Foos, I saw your cat just now yeah. in the video since we can see each other, although I only do audio. She? She. she. Yep. I have a cat and my, my dog is usually around here somewhere. So they're, they're, oh, okay. they're my, my staff sleeping on the job. I was on your Instagram and I did see a photo of your cat, but I didn't see your dog. Would you tell us a little bit more about your pets? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, Tyrion is my dog. He's a corgi. I have, he is now eight years old. Um, I've had him since basically like, gosh, a couple of days after I graduated from undergrad. He is very sassy, an absolute love. Um, we have many conversations. I'm pretty sure he probably has at least a master's degree by now with, um, I've had him all through school. So he's like my study buddy and he talks back to me, um, like with the grumbles, not like just in my head. Um, and then I have uh, Bernadette back here. Um, she is a, uh, let's see, short, short, American short haired terror, maybe is a good way to just, no, she, I, I joke a lot that she wakes up and chooses <laughs> violence like every morning, but no, she's, a, <laughs> a ama- she's amazing. Um, definitely probably one of my biggest emotional supports are these two, um, whenever I'm not feeling well or sad or happy, anything like there's just like a big pile of fur, just like all, all the time in this house. So I love them. I love that you have that support. Brooke, you have a similar type of support in your house, but also sometimes it can be a little tricky. Tell me about, tell me about your dogs. Oh, okay. So (laughs) I love them to death, (laughs) but they are literally, I would say that they're Ethel and Fred, like for sure. We had a, a, a pit bull, a a red nose pit bull for 13 years and he passed away um 4th of July weekend 2018 then we got Betty who um she was she's a papillon and poodle she's only 12 pounds but we got her at 6 weeks because she was born to a litter that um my mom's really good friend had and um that friend passed away suddenly Um, and so we took in Betty and Betty and Bam Bam were super, super close. So when Bam Bam died, we were like, okay, we needed to find another dog. So I thought about getting a small dog, but then a big dog, I thought, okay, you know, like that will kind of help with the balance. Well, so (laughs) we got Winston. I got Winston at, uh, six weeks. Girl, this dog, first of all, he's a cane corso. Okay. He looks like Marmaduke. He's oh. small for a cane corso. He's only like a hundred pounds. And he is probably the goofiest dog, but also the neediest dog. Like if I could just carry him around in my shirt all day, he would be completely fine. But also because whenever Amber and I are recording, 
Betty finds a way to bark and Winston finds a way to get in the camera shot. This is true. Every single time. So I don't know what, I don't know what the deal is today, but, and I love them to death because even though Betty doesn't like to be hugged or touched or anything, um, because I think she's really secretly a cat, um, she's still like my best friend. And so is Winston. Dr. Foose, Brooke, thank you so much for your voices and for your perspectives. You have both said things that are really making me think differently right now. And you've also provided so much information in a short amount of time that will really help other patients. So I want to thank you both so much for talking with me today and for everything that you do. Thank you. I'm really, I was really excited to be on the show. Thank you so much, Amber. I appreciate all your work in the community and thank you for bringing us together today. This was awesome. Hey, super listener. Thanks to Dr. Alexandra Foose for sharing her experience as both a clinical psychologist and as an ulcerative colitis patient living with a J-pouch. She is busy at Yale creating programs for people with IBD, and I'm excited to see the ways her activism benefits our community. You can find her on Instagram as at Dr. Period Alexandra Foose. And Foose is spelled F like Frank, U-S-S. Thank you also to Brooke Abbott, who has appeared on About IBD more than any other guest, and yet she always has a fresh perspective to share with us on life as a single mom with IBD. You can find her all over the interwebs as Crazy Creole Mommy, and you can find both of us together as IBD Moms. Links to a written transcript, everyone's social media handles, and more information on the topics we discussed is in the show notes and on my episode 112 page on aboutibd.com. You can follow me, Amber Tresca, across all social media as About IBD. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. The American Gastroenterological Association and About IBD, How to Be Happy and Healthy with IBD podcast series is supported by Arena Pharmaceuticals. About IBD is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Mix and sound design is by Matt Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio.